If you grab your copy of God's Word, this morning we're going to turn open to Psalm 29. Psalm 29, verses 1 through 2. If you're using a pew Bible, it's there on page 461. Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2. Let's go ahead and pray together before we open the Word together. Our Father in heaven, truly you alone are our treasure and our reward. We're thankful that you would choose to speak to us this morning by your Word and We pray that you would, according to your promises, that you would speak to your people, that you would stir within us this eternal truth, and that we would find that your word is written upon our hearts and our very lives. It's in the strong name of Christ, the living word's name that we pray, and by the Holy Spirit, amen. Psalm 29, verses 1 through 2, this is the holy and errant Word of God. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, this week, uh, we're going to begin uh, this summer. I just want to do a, a eight-week kind of sermon series this summer on uh, the doctrine of worship and looking at worship together. And this morning, I want to do a little more of a topical sermon and look at why we worship and then what is worship. So, why we worship and what is worship. And I wanted to look at worship together this summer because there's uh, nothing more important in all of life that we do than worship. And there is no portion of our life that is more important than what we do on Sunday mornings in congregational worship. This is the most important event of your life, week in and week out. And I think we tend to forget that or undervalue it or misunderstand it, if not outright despise it or dismiss it. Christians worship. This is what we do. And the church, when it gathers together, worships. This is what we do. But do we know what we are doing? And do we know why we're doing what we're doing? And I hope over these weeks to help us kind of flesh that out, to look at what we're doing and to look at why we're doing what we're doing. But this morning, why worship and what is it? Why worship and what is it? Why worship? Well, that leads us to our text here this morning. Look here at Psalm 29 and verses 1 and 2. And David, the psalmist, he issues a kind of exhortation And it's not an exhortation to whom we would expect. He exhorts angels. 
And he's exhorting these angels in heaven, and he says to them, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The psalm is set up in a wonderfully poetic way. You even have it here in these first few verses, uh, verses 1 through 4. You have verses 1 and 3, and then you have the echo in verses 2 and 4. And you will have this kind of poetic kind of approach throughout the entire psalm, this parallelism. And David, as the psalmist, is making an appeal for the angels in heaven. And what is the appeal that he's making to them? What's the exhortation that he's giving to them? It's that they would ascribe, that they would ascribe to the Lord glory. If we looked at this psalm, the rest of it, Psalm 29, we would see that what David is doing is he's speaking within the context of a thunderstorm has erupted. And like many of us, when we've been out in a thunderstorm, maybe you're sitting on your front porch or your back porch or you're in a car and you're driving along and all of a sudden the thunderstorm erupts and there are those dark clouds and then there are those flashes of light across the sky and then there are the the peals of thunder that clash in the night sky. Your mind immediately runs to God. You think this is an exhibition of His power and of His might, of His greatness, of His sovereignty. And your mind runs. And David, as he's watching one of these storms, he finds himself calling upon the angels to worship God. Why? Well, we can see that there are two appeals in his request. The first is that they ascribe glory to Him. That is, that they recognize who God is. That He's a God of infinite worth that He's a God of glory, that He's a God of strength, a a God of majesty, a God who sits enthroned over all, who is sovereign over all things, a God of might, a God of power, a God who dwells in holiness, a God in David's mind of surpassing worth. And so he says, worship Him. Worship Him. I appreciate uh, all your prayers over these past uh, couple of weeks. Uh, we felt incredibly supported by your prayers these past couple of weeks. Uh, I don't say that lightly. When we were in Taiwan and China, uh, our trip could not have gone better as a family. It was a important trip for our family. It was a, a trip of a lifetime in many ways and memory-making. And one of the great memories was when we were in China, we went outside of Beijing and we went to the Great Wall. And it is truly awe-inspiring. We went up to the Great Wall and uh, we, just to see this kind of monumental, historic human enterprise. Think of how many people were involved in a work like that over how many years, and they say over a million Chinese lost their lives building the Great Wall, and that they're buried underneath it. And it was uh, was fascinating to to walk it and 
to walk parts of it and to think about the history and think about, hey, here are a little place where seven or eight Chinese soldiers would have been, and then there is this 200 kind of yard uh, wall, and then you have another outpost where another six or seven would have been, and they would have ran back and forth when there was an assault on one part of the wall or another. Incredibly historic. There's part of it that wasn't historic. Uh, on the way down, we rode a toboggan on the way down, a slide down the Great Wall, like this wonderful roller coaster. It wasn't historic, but it was epic, and we rode that down. There's another part that wasn't historic as well. When we were on top of the Great Wall, there was this mountain that overlooked the portion that we were on, and there was this the sign on the mountain, it was made out of stones. They had laid all of these stones all over this mountainside so that it just kind of hovered over the Great Wall that you couldn't help but walk this section of the Great Wall and look at the sign. Kind of like what it would be, I guess, seeing the Hollywood sign in California. It just kind of dominates the landscape. And I asked our guide, I said, what does that sign say? And he said, it says, remember to honor Chairman Mao. I thought, isn't that interesting? This great wall that was built 350, 400 years before Chairman Mao was even born. The man's been dead for 55 years. And yet, they put on their honor Chairman Mao. Remember to honor Chairman Mao at this great historic place because they want you to think about the awesomeness of the wall and to link together the founder of communism, communist China, the People's Republic of China. They want to link those two things together. And so honor him, respect him, maybe even worship him. Man, that's been dead for 55 years. And he had nothing, absolutely nothing to do with it. Well, David knows the storm is caused by God. He's not seeking to connect them. They are connected. And as awesome as that storm is, he knows that the God that created that storm is even more awesome. And so he calls upon the angels. Ascribe to Him glory. Ascribe to Him glory and strength. Worship Him in the splendor of holiness. God is worthy of worship. It may be the most unneeded statement in, in all the universe to say that God is in need, that God is worthy of our worship. That He's worthy of our worship most unneeded statement in the universe, if it wasn't for fallen men and women and children and demons, because all the rest of creation knows it and understands it and believes it. He's worthy. He's worthy of all worship. That word worship has the idea of, of bowing down before someone. In the Greek, it's incredibly picturesque when it's used in the Greek. The it has the idea of bowing down and, and kissing the hem of the garment of the person before you, subjected before them. 
honoring them, glorifying them, ascribing to God the glory due His name. And this is God's desire. God Himself is passionate for His glory. He says in Isaiah 48, my glory I will give to no other. God is jealous for His own glory. He is passionate, absolutely passionate about receiving worship. Westminster Shorter Catechism, we're asked, what is the chief end of man? And the answer to that famous first question is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And as theologians have pointed out over the past couple of centuries, they said, you know, it's the same answer to God. What is the chief end of God? Well, the chief end of God is to glorify Himself and to enjoy Himself forever. It's the same end. He is no dead has-been. He is worthy of all praise and all glory. He's alive and He's sovereign. You think, well, that may be egocentric. Isn't that a little self-focused of God? That His chief end is His own glory. That His chief end is the delight in Himself. Isn't that a little selfish and self-seeking? But there's nothing in the universe that is more worthy he is worthy of all glory. He's worthy of all worship. He's worthy of all delight. He's worthy of you finding your all satisfaction in Him. There is nothing that God could pursue that is more beautiful. There's nothing that He could pursue that is better than Himself. There is nothing that He could promote that is more glorious than Himself. And so He is seeking the best thing, Himself. And it's right. If I was to walk down the center aisle this morning and say, when I walk down that center aisle, I would like all of you to bow to me. And those of you that are nearest to the aisle, if you can, I want you to grab a hold of my hand and kiss my wedding ring, if you can. This church would be empty next week. And rightfully so. Because I'm not worthy. Not worthy of such honor. Not worthy of such glory. Not worthy of such worship. But He is. And David knows that the angels are created for this very purpose, and so he calls upon them. He calls upon them to give this glory to God, not just because they were created for this purpose, but also because he knows that his praise is insufficient itself. He looks upon that thunderstorm, and he thinks about who God is, that God is greater than this thunderstorm, and he thinks about himself, and he thinks how feeble his voice is. How frail his spirit is. How lacking his knowledge is and his wisdom is and his delight is. And how insufficient his praise would be. And so he calls upon the angels. Ah, join me. Worship God with me. You were created for this purpose, O oh angels. And this is what David also knows. He knows that he also was created for this purpose. 
And so were you. Every man, woman, and child ever created, ever formed, was created for this singular purpose, to give glory to God. It doesn't matter what stage of life you're in. It doesn't matter what part of life you are in, who you are, what you do. You were created for this singular purpose to give glory and to worship God. When Adam was created from the dust of the ground and Eve was created from his side, they were created to be worshipers. And they were given the mandate to fill all of the earth with what? With little images of God. Why? So that when God looked upon creation, He would see Himself reflected back to Himself. That He would receive glory. But what happens in Genesis 3? Adam and Eve fall. And because they fall, the image of God in man is, is defamed. In some ways, it's annihilated. In other ways, it's just disfigured. And so what does God do? He sends His beloved Son into this world to live and to die for sinners. Why? so that we might be recreated unto His glory. You were created to give Him worship, to give Him glory. You were recreated, dear Christian, to give Him glory. What does Paul say there in Ephesians 1, verse 4? He says, In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. The end of your salvation is the praise of His glorious grace. That's why you were saved. You were created for worship. You were recreated for worship. And you will be resurrected unto worship. What will you do in the new heavens and the new earth? You will worship. You will give glory to God. It will be a kind of unrestrained, unstained, and unending continual service of worship to God. And so it's no surprise that we would understand that all of our life is to be a life lived in worship. Paul was saying in Romans 12, right? I therefore appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to the Lord. You're to live all of your life in worship to Him. What does he say in 1 Corinthians 10? He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Your entire life is a life to be lived in worship. And yet, having said that, there are also these individual spheres within our life that are to be worshiped. And so, we have those private, quiet times, that private worship where we see the Lord Jesus Himself get away with His Father before sunrise so that He can pray, so He can meditate upon the Word. And so, the Christian that is living all of their life in worship to God gets away each day to pray and to read the Word. If you're not, you're starving your soul. And death is on the horizon. You need it. It's your lifeblood. 
That's not just fam- it's not just personal worship, private worship, but there's also family worship we see in the scriptures. Deuteronomy 6, that we're to pass these things on to our children, or Psalm 78, that we're to pass this on to the coming generation, and we gather together with those in our home, and we spend time just reading the Bible and praying, 10 minutes a day, but centering our home upon Christ, worshiping. But then there is the great moment of the week, and that's corporate worship. What we're doing here this morning, what we're doing right now, it's on the Lord's day. It's in the Lord's house with the Lord's people that we're meeting with the Lord, that the Christian is to find their absolute greatest delight in all of life. This is it. Here's to be the high point of our week. In fact, you and I should be so dominated by this that we think about living our week from Lord's day to Lord's day, from Sabbath to Sabbath. That's how we think about our life. Lord's Day to Lord's Day, Sabbath to Sabbath. Because it's unlike any other assembly. This is unlike any other moment. This is unlike any other event, no matter how enjoyable small groups or family gatherings may be. This alone is unique. It's different. If you think back over the Scriptures and you think from Mount Sinai to the tabernacle to the temple to the synagogues to the house churches in Acts, we see God's people gathering together that they might worship the true and living God. That's what they do. So we know in Acts 2.42 that the first Christians, that they met together regularly for teaching, for fellowship, for the Lord's Supper, and for prayer. We know from 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 that public worship was an important part of the life of the church. We see in 1 Timothy 4.13 that there were regular times for the public reading of Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 11.18, we read of these instructions for when you come together as a church, indicating that there was a unique time that they gathered together as a church. This wasn't just a few Christians hanging out together and talking about Jesus or listening to podcasts. They were coming together to worship. In 1 Corinthians 16, we read instructions for setting aside a collection, a tithe on the first day of the week, suggesting that the church in Corinth met each week on the first day of the week for worship services. And most relevant for our subject, of course, is Hebrews 10. Where the writer of Hebrews says, Do not forsake the weekly fellowship of the saints. And that term there, that, that weekly fellowship, it, it has the idea of this corporate gathering for worship. He's saying, don't forsake it. God's people throughout history gather weekly for worship. That's what they do. Live from Lord's Day to Lord's Day, looking forward to that next day that they might gather with God's people. That they might give Him praise and ascribe Him the glory that is due His name, journey to the house of the Lord. This is the assumption of the New Testament and should be the natural inclination and desire of every regenerate heart. Truly, the New Testament has no category. It has no category for a Christian that would not journey to the house of the Lord on a Sunday if they could. They have no category for that. The apostles would blush 
at those that would make the claim that a Christian can live their life apart from the body gathered together. There'd be no such concept in a New Testament Christian's mind. God's people throughout history gather weekly for worship. I was talking with a woman in China just last week, and she was saying that uh, as a Christian, she said it was, it's been hard to find a church where she was at, and so she and her family, they travel an hour every Sunday to go to a church. And she said it is a hard trip, and it's a long trip, and we have to travel an hour back home. And she said some weeks we want to be there for morning and evening service, and so we travel the hour and we spend the whole day there so that we can be with God's people all day. I think the persecuted church throughout the world long to be able to worship as we can worship each Sunday. What luxuries we enjoy and how often the routine becomes the despised. When we look at the New Testament, the greatest metaphor for the church in the New Testament is the body. We are the body of Christ. And that surely speaks of Christ being our head and our dependence upon Him, but it also speaks of the fact that we are interly dependent upon one another. And that's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 12, is that you and I are dependent upon one another that we need one another in each other's lives. And so we gather together weekly as a community of faith to inform one another's lives. And we could say in a very real sense that here as we are gathered together, the Spirit is fully present in a way that He is not in any other part of our lives. Because it's here that all the spiritual gifts are present. That the woman with the, the gift of encouragement can encourage you. That the young man with the gift of faith can model faith before you. That the person with the gift of teaching can teach. That the person with the gift of helps can help. And we build into one another's lives as the body of Christ as we're being built up into a holy temple unto the Lord. Informing one another's lives by the Spirit. And the gifts that the Spirit has given to us for one another's encouragement. And growth in Christ. But in worship, we're not only meeting with the body of Christ. Most importantly, we're meeting with God Himself. Or maybe more accurately say, He's meeting with us. I want us to understand what's actually happening in corporate worship. So I think many times we're robbing ourselves of the joy and the delight and the significance of what's happening in this room right now. And I think probably by our comments when we head out of the room or what we talk about over lunch or maybe even our preparation before we come or lack of preparation before we come, we're robbing one another as well. So our second point, what is worship? Of course, it is giving God His glory. It is giving Him His due. It is ascribing Him praise and worship. But if I can say it like this, worship is not primarily about giving. I think in evangelicalism, we probably have a bigger problem today where many think worship is about receiving. It's all about the person in the pew. 
It's all about what I want and what I desire and what I like in a service and what helps me emotionally or what helps me spiritually. It's also not primarily about receiving. It's true, we receive in worship. You and I receive the Word of God. We receive the blessing of Christ. We receive peace. We receive assurance of the forgiveness of our sins. We receive joy. But worship is not primarily about giving. And it's not primarily about receiving. There has to be something that's a foundation for those two things to happen. If worship is not primarily about giving, it's not primarily about receiving, what is it? It's primarily about being. It's about being with God. And because God is with us, because He is dwelling in our midst, we can give to Him. And we can receive from Him. But worship is primarily about being. God comes by His Word and the Spirit into the midst of His people and dwells in their presence. You're meeting with God this morning. You're on holy ground. The sovereign God of the universe who David quaked at that thunderstorm and it led him to call upon those angels to sing and praise, that same God draws near to you in this room this morning. And welcomes you to draw near to Him. That is what's happening in worship. It is the greatest gift we can receive in this life. Is to be present with God. Isn't this what was lost in the garden? God's intimate presence, His close fellowship. But now you and I get to enjoy that by virtue of Christ as we gather together with His people. And it's a foretaste of what we shall enjoy for all of eternity in heaven. We're with Him. We're meeting with Him. Or rather, He's meeting with us. You say, but aren't we always living with God as Christians? We're, we're filled with the Spirit. The answer is yes, yes. But corporate worship is special. One theologian presented it this way. He said, it's like a kingdom that's ruled by an absolute monarch. And that absolute monarch, everybody knows that he rules the land. And he's kind of omnipresent. Everybody knows he's there. But there's quite a difference for the peasant out in the field and the peasant in the throne room of the king. And there's even more of a difference when the king invites him to the table. And he sits down with him and he says, have fellowship with me at the table. As word and as spirit, God is in corporate worship in a very direct communing way with his, with his people. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan preacher, said this. He said, a sign of God's children is to delight, to delight to be much in God's presence. 
He said, God is in a special manner present in his ordinances. And ordinances is just an old term to refer to the word preached, the word read, the sacraments and prayer. He says, God is in a special manner present in his ordinances. They are the ark of his presence. Now, if we are his children, we love to be much in holy duties. In the use of ordinances, we draw near to God. We come into our Father's presence. It is sweet being in his presence. Think about the psalmist in Psalm 42, and we often quote that psalm as if it is referring to kind of the individual in private worship, but that is not the context. The psalmist says, like a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He's longing for corporate worship. In some way, he hasn't been able to journey to the house of the Lord and gather with God's people and to meet with God. And so Spurgeon will say on this passage, will say, debarred from public worship, that is, David is no longer able to gather with God's people to worship him. Spurgeon says David was heartsick. Ease he did not seek, honor he did not covet, but the enjoyment of communion with God was an urgent need of his soul. He viewed it not merely as the sweetest of all luxuries, but as an absolute necessity like water to a stag, like the parched traveler in the wilderness whose skin bottle is empty and who finds the well dry. He must drink or die. He must have his God or faint. His soul, his very self, his deepest life was insatiable for a sense of the divine presence. He just longed. To be with God and His people. The psalmist say in Psalm 84, he says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I'd rather be a servant in God's house than have all the riches of the world. He says, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Just this longing, this longing to be with the living God. To be much in God's presence is the heart cry of the Christian. We should want more of Him, not less. Can I remind you of that as you go on summer vacations? Find a church to worship in on Sundays. Just long to be in his house. I encourage you to think about this summer maybe trying a new practice of coming back for Sunday evening worship. You should want more of him, not less of him. Can I encourage you to Think about actually preparing before you come in here on Sunday morning. And remembering that this is holy ground, that you're getting ready to meet with the living God of the universe who sits enthroned on high and angels must hide their faces before and yet you get to draw near to Him. There should be some preparation in coming in. Getting our hearts ready. Getting our minds ready. Getting our spirits ready. For the church, worship is what we do. 
worshipers is who we are. I have one final thought for you to think about this morning in light of David calling upon these angels to, to join him in praise. I hope you understand that what you and I enjoy, even now on Sunday mornings, exceeds what the angels on high in heaven experience in worship with God. I hope you understand that. If Clarence, of It's a Wonderful Life, was correct, and angels long to get their wings, every angel would give up their wings to enjoy what you and I enjoy on Sunday morning. They give them up. Like angels, we're worshiping God, coming before Him. We know Him to be God. We know Him to be glorious. We know Him to be holy. We know Him to be infinite. We know Him to be just. We know Him to be good. We know Him to be love. But very much unlike the angels, we know Him not only to be holy God, but to be our holy Savior. We know Him not only to, to be a just judge, but we know Him as our Father. We know Him not only as powerful and omnipotent God, but we know Him as our merciful and gracious Lord. We know Him as we are united to Him. They don't. We know Him as a friend. But even better, we know Him as His children. We know Him as He indwells us. What we experience in corporate worship on Sunday mornings exceeds what the angels experience even now or ever shall experience in heaven. Because we're united to Him. should astound us that sinners such as us get to enjoy this delight week in and week out. He created you to be a worshiper. He recreated you to be a worshiper. And He will resurrect you unto worship. This is what the church does because this is who we are. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful that you are a God who reveals yourself to sinners. We're thankful that you didn't just leave us destitute in our sins, but that you recreated us for your glory, that we might ascribe you the glory that is due your name. Forgive us that so often worship is lost on us. We treat it as trite. We find our minds wandering to what we're going to have for lunch, about the game later today, about the nap we want to take. Forgetting the incredible privilege that we have been given in your Son. 
we've been made yours. You've drawn near to us. And that we have seen things and shall see things about which angels long to look upon. Oh, we would ascribe you the glory that is due your name and worship you in the splendor of holiness. I give you praise, our God. In Christ's name, amen.